0: My family and I lived in North Hollywood, California, going to undergraduate studies and then seminary. We uh, tried to bring a little piece of Nebraska to North Hollywood. That's grass, the green grass. You just don't get the rain there in California that, that we do here. And typically, it's like more monsoon. It dumps. You're not able to make use of it. So my, my kids are pretty young. It's a toddler age, up to maybe eight or so. We tried to turn that soil and plant grass, and it didn't, It died so fast. It didn't take. I mean, we, we marked it all off with rope. You notice the kids, you can't go into this section. So we tried again, and we tried again, and we tried again. Finally, we gave up and said, forget it. Let's just spray it all down with water, kids. It's a mud hole. Have fun. <laughs> and they had fun <laughs> sliding in the mud. I was told that in North Hollywood, in the San Fernando Valley, the soil is largely made of Sand. I experienced two earthquakes, you know, while we lived out there, nineteen eighty-seven the Whittier earthquake, and the nineteen ninety four Northridge earthquake, and I was told that the the type of soil has a huge effect. If the earthquake hits sand, it's dispersed, the energy is dispersed slowly. If it hits hard rock, it, it moves rapidly and quickly. It's a huge jarring effect. And it affects the dwellings above it. In our life, Scripture often talks about our life as gardening, soil, fruitfulness, uses analogies of a crop, a harvest. Our life is like that too. Trials, suffering come into our life, and they shake us up, and they test what kind of soil. Death, of all things, comes along and radically removes us from the face of the earth. What kind of soil we're grounded in, that's all that matters. Were we grounded in Christ? Were we grounded in Ourselves. Ecclesiastes 3.20 says, All are from the dust, and to dust we return. Solomon in Ecclesiastes 2.18 is pondering this. If we all return to dust, and even my efforts does. He says, I hated all my toil, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. What's the point? Just give up. Death comes. It turns everything in the end to dust you know that? I mean, you go back to a hometown. I'm from Paxton, Illinois, 4,400. Of course, I tell people like Dustin Linden that, and he says, was it 300 or 400 that he's from? And I, I guess I'm from a large, a large city, apparently. <laughs> but from a small town, and you go back to visit, and it just changes. Some, things, some buildings may not change, but over time, the names change. The Ben Franklin changes. <laughs> Towns change. All those memories seem to pass away. Homes that you celebrated in, sold, gone, under construction, wiped away, replaced by other buildings. Paul's solution, and we're going to be in Colossians for the next three weeks. He says this in Colossians 3, 3, through 4, you have died. <laughs> so instead of facing the death to come and being swept away, he says this, you have died, past tense. And your life, and you ask, how do, how do I die now in order to... Uh, escape the loss of everything when the judgment of death comes. A final death scripture talks about, not just a physical death, but a final judgment, eternal death, scripture calls that. We face the judge, and if we're not in Christ, we're judged by our deeds. It involves a prison, scripture calls this hell, the lake of fire. That final judgment, how do we escape that? Well, you need to die now. And he says in Colossians 3.3, 3, your life is hidden with Christ in God trusting in Jesus Christ. God credits Christ's righteousness to you. He unites you with Christ so that he sees Christ in your stead. Your life is hidden. And that's how you die now. And then he goes on to say in verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's how we survive, if you will, from this life into the next. We die now by trusting in Christ, being hidden in Christ. And then when he appears... He is our life, and we're unveiled in that great glory of Jesus Christ. Well, Paul is dealing with those two extremes, death, barrenness, and life and vitality that is found in Jesus Christ. And if you will, he gives us, and we'll, we'll not look at them all today, but if you want to outline the broad picture of the next three weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the provisions for Christian fruitfulness now obviously, they need to be grounded in the soil of Christ. That soil of self-trust is going to need to be supplanted, removed, not just added to, like the human religions do. Let's just add Jesus plus everything else. No, Scripture calls for a supplanting, a removal, a death to self, and a trusting, a resting in Christ. And so, Paul outlines the, the Christian, God's Christian plan for fruitfulness, and we're going to see that in verses 1 through 8, he outlines the sufficient fruitfulness of Christ's word, the gospel. It's the gospel. It's the word. What's very intriguing about Paul's introduction is you can actually take these three provisions in verses 1 through 14, and he's going to break them out and treat them in more in depth from one fifteen and following. So 1, 1 through 14, he's going to give us this three-point outline we'll look at him briefly just to set the tone for the next three weeks. And then he's going to draw, if I could use the image of a well, from the well of Christ. And look at this from chapter 1, 15 through the end of the book. So we'll need to, to look at the well that's behind these three provisions to help, us, to help enrich our understanding. So he'll explain the gospel. I mean, the whole book is unfolding the person and work of Jesus Christ. Well, we say the sufficient fruitfulness of Christ's word of the gospel that we see in verses 1 through 8. That's, that's what he's highlighting the word of truth, the gospel. Yet we find in the whole book there's this well of gospel truth. He, he unfolds it for us. The second provision that we'll see next week, he outlines in verses 9 through 10, it's the sufficient wisdom of Christ's person. And in verse 9, he prays. Uh, well, look, look at the end of verse ten. He prays that we be increasing in the knowledge of God. Well, he asks, "Well, what is the knowledge of God?" Well, what he's going to do is unfold for us Jesus Christ, and he's going to say in verse fifteen through seventeen, he's the Creator. He's the very image of God. He is God, and he's the Redeemer, the one who redeems his church. So in verse ten, he'll say, "You need to grow in this knowledge of God," and you say, "Well." How do I know God? And he's going to tell you, it's in Christ. And then verses 11 through 14, he's going to talk to us about the sufficiency of the power of Christ's work. So we see the fruitfulness of Christ's word, the gospel, in 1 through 8. In 9 through 10, we see the wisdom of Christ's person, but again, he's going to unfold it. He's going to use water pumps, if you will, to drop from the well of the deity of Christ to help us understand the knowledge of God. And then in verses 11 through 14, He's going to draw from the power of Christ's work, the power of Christ's work. And to do that, then he'll drop into chapter 2 and talk about being buried and raised, dying with Christ. That the decrees of the law and its debt that we owe, so it required the cross work of Christ to pay that debt, and the legal demands of the law that we owe obedience, both are fulfilled by Jesus Christ, so he redeems us, rescues us, and brings us to God. So we could say that in verses 1 through 14 really gives us the contours of the entire book. 1 through 8 highlights the gospel. 9 through 10 highlights the deity, ultimately of Christ, that he's going to draw from. That we're going to grow in that knowledge and grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding by knowing who Christ is. And then strengthened in verses 11 through 14, we need to understand redemption. So that we're encouraged, strengthened to live life. Because we're going to, in life, you, as you grow, you begin to realize your failures and your guilt. And you start dealing with suffering and trials and the, the, the goals of investments in your life that you hoped you could live on get wiped away by the market. I mean, you, you hoped for health and you'd lived your life maybe dieting or doing exercise or maybe things have gotten away because you've been hit with some suffering and your hope of maybe catching up, it's lost. And you realize, Wait a minute. Where's my hope? And he says the strength is found, the power for your life to encourage you in the midst of suffering is found in Christ's redemption. That he has paid for our failures, our guilt, our our suffering, that he's obtained glory. So that's the, the basic contours of Colossians that we'll be looking through together. Now, if you can imagine with me, the old pioneers as they're, you know, moving into, let's say, the west. Maybe it's western Nebraska. It's probably not quite that... That bad, but I think more of desert. You know, you drive through, for me, we drive from California back because I was there for 10 years. So we try to get back for Christmas. And you drive through these Death Valley, you know, 115 heat. It's like, what in the world? And there's a city, you know, there's a town there. How do they survive? Well, somehow there's, there's some land in the midst of this barrenness and desert, and they've got water there some way. The water's key for life. So what Paul and Colossians is going to do is he's going to say, hey, outside, there is barrenness. And we think about the world and trusting in the flesh and self. There's desert life. and He's going to need to address that in order that we'd understand the life and vitality of living in Christ. If you will, that oasis, that small town. How are you able to survive as a church, as a Christian in the midst of a barren world that keeps preaching trust in self, trust in self. So to do that, let's look at some threats. Now remember, we're, we're underscoring the word of truth, the gospel. That's the first provision for fruitfulness is the word of Christ, the gospel. And what he's going to do is funnel on the idea of hope, hope, hope. But in order to see the blessing of hope, like that well that we're going to tap into in this barren desert, we need to understand the desert that we're dealing with. As we get caught off guard and go wandering into the desert and we're trusting what's preached to us and proclaimed in TV and the radio and the internet and the blogosphere, and on and on it goes, Right? So we want to be aware of the barrenness. So to do that, let's look at this death barrenness that we need to guard our hearts. So we're running to Christ. Look at verse 21 of chapter 1. Let's look at the barrenness. Why is the word of truth, the gospel, so vital? We use vital as in life-giving. Verse 21, this is huge. I I love this kind of stuff. It gives us really an antidote. Uh, Well, it gives us an, an understanding of sin. And you who once were alienated, Paul in Ephesians talks about being alienated from God. You who once were alienated. So he's talking to Christians who now are not alienated. According to verse 23, they've been reconciled, which means to be a friend of God, to be at peace with God, to be with him. But we once were alienated. That was our past. And then he moves on and says, and hostile in mind and engaged or doing evil deeds. Notice the sequence. You see, what the world does is it focuses on doing the evil deeds, understands that there's, well, you've got the list in chapter 3, verse 5. You've got a great list of evil deeds. Uh, sexual immorality, he says this is earthly. 3 5, this is earthly. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, it's idolatry. And verse 8, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Boy, it's all over the internet right now, all over the news. It's everywhere. All our politicians, Hollywood, it's. All abusive speech, right? How do you corral it? How do you deal with it? So the world understands there's a problem. And what the world focuses on is, well, just replacing the the evil deeds because why? Well, they say, well, we're good people. Maybe there's some bad people, but I don't know how they got there. I don't know, but it's the environment. Something did something to them, or they're just the extreme monsters in life, they may say. But they're focused on behavioral replacement. The text tells us that the doing evil deeds flows out of the hostility in mind. We have a... We're hostile to God. We know that the sum of the law is to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love our neighbor as ourselves, because we we image God. And so to love God, we love neighbors. That's the call. But we're hostile to God. And so that hostility to God presents itself in hostility to those around us and is demonstrated in doing evil deeds. So the well of this water is corrupt. It's It's hostile to God and to others. And we may try to clean it up for a while and... Throw some grass on it, right? But the soil is, has no life, no vitality. But where does this hostility come from? Can I just change my heart, change my mind, just put new thoughts in there? Well, we're told that too, right? If, if behavior replacement doesn't work, let's replace our thinking. Well, he says, no, there's a deeper problem. It's found, in, again, in verse 21. Go before hostility. What is the problem? We're alienated from God. That's the problem. You see, if we don't have the life of God if we're not in communion with him, if we're not in fellowship with him, if we don't have his spirit in our lives and hearts, we're cut off from the life of God. And that's the problem. You see, when Adam sinned against God, he was immediately judged by God. He was cut off from God. And what, comes, what happens when we're outside of the shadow of the life of God is corruption. So first we're cut off. There's a legal judgment. And then corruption. And from that corruption births all kinds of sinful activities. So the world's focused on the doing, and then it's focused on the thinking. And the Bible says we have a problem with God that needs to be resolved. And what's the answer? I love the threefold answer in verse 22. You need to be reconciled in the body of his flesh. Christ needs to die for you to pay for your sins. See, that's what alienates from God is the legal demands of the law. So we need to be reconciled. And that brings us into fellowship and communion with God. He's for us, not against us. And then he says in 22, then we're presented holy and blameless and above reproach. So notice instead of the hostility of mind, there's the blessing of blamelessness and being above reproach. It's the Christian character of life. We call that sanctification. It flows out of the life of God, which we're reconciled with. And then from there comes the fruit in verse 23. We continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting away from the hope of the gospel. So the character, the behavior then flows out of that. So that's the context. Paul wants them to understand that. Because if we keep focusing on the behavior and then we focus on thinking replacement, we never see the need for the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. We're just going to add him in. I'm going to Christianize the Bible. How did Jesus walk? I'm going to walk like him. No, that Jesus walk should show us our inability and failure and drive us to see, I need him to pay my debt. I have a, a sin problem. I'm, I'm guilty. I'm in rebellion. I'm in hostility to God. Now, the world has strategies, too. We need to see that. This is the source of the sinfulness, alienation from God. But what the world does, then, and our flesh, we we cave into this, too, because we're dealing with this flesh. That's why we're ever in need of the beautiful word of God to remind us of his truths. But here's the strategy we want to watch out for. So look at 2.18. He's going to give us a fourfold strategy that we need to be aware of that, sin works, to try to overcome sin. The Bible tells us the sin problem, the root of it is alienation from God. You need to be reconciled with God. But what sin, the sinful flesh does, is says, well, no, it's the behavior problem, it's the environment, so here are my solutions. Paul says they don't work. I want you to see, first of all, where he says they don't work in verse 23 of chapter 2. These have indeed, the fourfold strategy of sin, have indeed an appearance of wisdom. They look good from from the flesh. Again, flesh would be our self-pride, self-glory, self-trust, rather than trusting in our God and Creator and Redeemer. They promote self-made religion, so we make this up. A lot of people do. And you can boil them down to asceticism, severity to the body. And what does he say? They have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So we're trying to stop the flesh. The world sees it. And it uses four strategies, and we need to be aware of them. They have no power in stopping the flesh. In the end, death is going to come too in judgment. It may work for time externally, but it has no real power to deal with the judge. So what are the fourfold strategies? Well, just so you're aware of them, really quickly, verse 18. Asceticism. He says, insisting on asceticism. Asceticism says, the problem's out there. It's the environment. It's my family. I'm a victim. If I separate from it, and I just have myself, me, myself, and I... I'll be okay. Now, the problem is the hostility of the mind and alienations within. We're just going to run into ourselves. That's asceticism. Worship of angels, we have a fancy word for that. We call that mysticism. He says, uh, verse 18, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So, this is this transcendent experience that nobody else has, I have. But he says, you know what? You can't escape yourself because it's just inflated by our own sensual, fleshly passions and desires. So in trying to escape by having this great transcendent experience that nobody else has, I'm still stuck within the delusion of my own mind. Mysticism. Secondly, is legal, or thirdly, is legalism. Asceticism, mysticism, legalism. And legalism, he says in the end of verse 20, submitting to regulations, verse 21, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. It's the list we go get the list. Don't do this, do this. That'll stop this fleshly passion that is destroying our culture, destroying families. It's to say, I'm not the problem, it's the environment, and if I follow this list of self-righteousness, I'm a good person, I can do this. I cannot weigh my good with my bad. It's legalism. Using law to try to self-righteously overcome our failures, but we're denying we're the problem. And then lastly, we would The the theological term is licentiousness. It's probably actually an old term. that is not just limited to the church. Licentiousness. It's the license, the freedom to do whatever you want. And if I can't overcome it, then I must be the definition of reality. And so he says in verse 5 of chapter 3, we've seen it already. Look at the list. It's earthly, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, self-freedom. I define reality. I define myself. He says these have no value in stopping the flesh and definitely has no way to deal with our enmity with God. Thomas Brooks says the world deludes a man and puts cheats upon him. It promises a man pleasure and pays him with pain. It promises profit and pays him with loss. Loss of God, loss of Christ, of comfort, of heaven, of happiness, of all. It promises contentment and fills him with torment and can never satisfy the soul of man. makes all these great, he says it's an appearance of wisdom, but it it doesn't deal with the heart. It avoids the heart so we don't see our need for Christ. He quotes, Brooks quotes, quotes from Bernard, who says, Such a man, being hungry, gapes continually for the wind, opens his mouth to try to be satisfied by the wind. While he may be puffed, he cannot be filled and satisfied. That's the problem. So, we've seen the old pioneers coming in, Think of the analogy. Sometimes images help, sometimes they don't. Sometimes you get lost in it. What are we talking about pioneers for? Uh, I was just trying to draw an analogy of going in and trying to find the right kind of soil. So I can establish a home, grow a garden, and there's desert all around. What do I look for? And Paul is going to say, you want to look for the sufficiency of Christ's word, the gospel. We've seen the barrenness. We've seen the strategy. Here's the antidote. Here's the answer. And for this, we're going to turn back to chapter one, and we're just going to work quickly through one through eight. We want to look at, really, you could say it's a living hope. And this living hope, according to verse five, why don't you go to verse five? That'll be a great way to just take this lens so we can look through that lens at the the verses surrounding it. Perspective is good. I'll tell you some of the things you see when you're in a plane. You know, Oh, I didn't know that was there. Well, we're looking through the plane, God's perspective through the gospel at life. It gives us great perspective. And in verse 5, he says, because of the hope, he calls it a hope, as opposed to these things that have no value. Laid up for you in heaven, of this you've heard before, and I want you to catch this, the, in the word of truth, the gospel. That is where the hope is found, in the word of truth. The gospel it's not man's wisdom. It's not, it has the appearance of wisdom. this is God's word that emphasizes a proclamation, a herald is proclaiming truth, and it's found in the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news about Jesus Christ. It's beautiful. Now let's look at this hope quickly before we look at verse one. Just we're kind of narrowing down. We did real broad. we're going to move now to hope. We need to look at a couple verses in chapter one that help us understand hope. Because maybe we're asking what is so living about this hope. Well, in verse five, we saw, right, it's laid up for you in heaven. So it's, it's a certified realization. It is laid up. It is stored. It's in the bank. You have an inheritance. It's secured. That's what this is. It's done. In fact, all you say, well, do I need to do anything to get it? Uh, no, you hear it in verse 5. You heard before in the word of truth the gospel. Because it's laid up, and we're going to see it's Christ. Because of his work of salvation, he's ascended as the ascended Lord. He's been raised. We just receive it through the proclamation of the word. It's an announcement. Maybe you need a little help with that. If you think of the emancipation of proclamation, those of you who are doing it still in history classes at school, January 1st, 1863... President Abraham Lincoln made an executive order that changed, immediately changed the legal status of 3.5 million slaves. Does that mean they all experienced the realities of its fullness? No, but once he made the proclamation, their legal status changed. This is the word of truth. Christ ascended, salvation accomplished, it's proclaimed. We rest in that by faith. Unless our status with God as an enemy of God as a slave to sin that we willfully choose in Adam. Unless that's changed, there's no place to even talk about good soil and good citizenship and a good life before God in the hope of heaven. We need a status change, a legal change. We need a proclamation. We do nothing to grab onto it. We can do nothing to lose it. It's laid up in heaven. It's secured. It's certified. It's realized. That's the hope he's talking about here, not just this wish and prayer It's a secured hope, already done, secured in heaven. The rightful king has done it, Christ Jesus. In fact, we're going to see in Colossians 2 that we're made alive because of that. What he does in 1 Corinthians 15 says he pours out his spirit. As the ascended Lord, he secured salvation and he pours out his spirit. His spirit indwells us, regenerates us, births us, gives us life. We believe, we trust in Christ. Even our faith is the gift of the ascended king. Because he's ascended, he sends out the blessings of his kingship. We believe... We are secure in him. That's the hope he's talking about. It's not in us. It's outside of us. It's in him. What's so interesting, we're alienated from God and we need an alien hope, something outside of us to secure us, to solve this alienation problem. Verse 23 gives us another aspect of hope. Indeed, you, and this is chapter 1 still, continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting away from the, the hope of the gospel that you've heard. And we've already talked about it because we saw it in verse 5, this idea of hearing. It's the hope of the gospel that you've heard. It's a, again, it's a proclamation. So if you think of verse 5, this hope is laid up, and I love that, for you on your behalf. He's the representative. He's done it all, and it's in your place. So you do nothing but rest in your representative. And here, you you hear it. You just receive it. It's a confirmed proclamation. It's an announcement. You're free. Delivered. But there's also confident expectation. So again, what is this hope? Well, it's realized. It's proclaimed. So we just receive it through hearing of it. And then we rejoice in it. There's a confident expectation. It's so far from this wish and prayer that I hope this happens. I hope... This team wins. It's going to say my favorite team, but I don't want to distract. <laughs> Way too absorbed in that. <laughs> verse 27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. And he says, we proclaim in verse 28, and the end of 28, we present everyone mature in Christ. So this hope of glory is a confident expectation. We're focused upon him as we hear of this hope of glory, and we're actually conformed to the image of Christ. It has a transforming work in our life. You know how hope works, right? You're in despondency and somebody says, hey, I can see the end of the tunnel here. I've been through it. Here's the end of the cancer treatments. Here's the end of the race. Here's the end of that schooling that you're going through. Here's the feelings of depression that you're going to go through. And as you're coming out of it, I can see that confident expectation." You get the light at the end of the tunnel. It gives you expectant hope. And it has a transformative work. It starts to encourage you, give you life. Well, this hope is the hope. And it helps us interpret our suffering, trials, and death in light of alienation from God. We know that's the problem, is alienation from God. It's not the environment's the problem, so let me pull away. It's not this, I need a transcendent experience that only somebody has in another country. I need... A list, the right list. Which list? I keep going through a list, list. I'm going to run out of time before I get done with that list. Self-freedom, I'm going to invent myself. It's not that. It's alienation from God. And so what do we do is we realize this is hope because that's the real problem. It's alienation from God, and Christ has secured that. So that's the living hope. Now, we finally can just plow away through verses 1 through 8. And we just look, look at this hope. What is this hope? Well, we've seen the broad view. I'm going to give you four descriptions. I'm sorry, three descriptions of this hope. This living hope is, if you're taking notes, God's grace to you in the supreme person. God's grace to you in the supreme person. Look at verse 2 of chapter 1 grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is a grace that comes from God. It comes from heaven. Isn't that beautiful? It comes from heaven, so it's outside of this, this world. And Christ steps down into this world to secure this hope. And then what does he do? He ascends. So it's laid up in heaven. So it comes from heaven. It's secured in heaven. It's beautiful. So it's grace that comes from God our Father. Look at verse 3. Now we're going to start looking at God's grace to you in the supreme person. He gives us the best. He says, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. You get him. You want riches and glory and an inheritance, eternal life. You want wisdom. You You want understanding. You want joy unbounding? You want ultimate goodness? You want justice? Christ, the supreme person. That's the one. And so what does he do? And we just fly by this when we're reading. Verse 3, it causes thanks, right? We always thank God because we're not adding to it. It's just it's laid up in heaven. We receive it through the hearing of the proclamation of the king as the Gospels preached. So we respond in thanks. And what are we giving thanks for? The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's emphasizing his eternal sonship when he says Father of our Lord. Lord is the word kurios, and it's used to translate the Hebrew title Yahweh. And in Paul's writings and Peter's writings, they often translate Old Testament texts referring to Yahweh, and they replace it with this Greek term, Lord or kurios. In other words, they ascribe the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in Colossians, we don't see an exact quote from the Old Testament like we do in 1 and 2 Peter and Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians. But what we do see is that he's called the very image of the invisible God in verse 15. In chapter 2, verse 9, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He's the eternal son, emphasizing his deity. See, you want hope, well, you're going to need to get it from God. And he's given you his son. He's God. He's the Lord. He's the provider. He's Yahweh. That's your supply. But what good does it do to have the supply in Christ, who's fully God, who provides a divine value and worth to his atoning work, right? We know it's for us. We know that we can never lose that righteousness that he secured for us by his obedience. Because you are got to take all the attributes of God and just stack them on there. His work has eternal value. His work is unchanging. He's not going to lose us because his divine person, Christ, stands behind all that he's, he's done. His divine nature stands behind all that he's done for us, even in his humanity. So while it's in his humanity that he had to die for us and he lived the perfect life for us, he's fully God. So this rich supply is this hope for us. But how do you get it? Well, I love it. You you only get it if you have the right to it. You need a right to it because we've been alienated. And so he gives the title Jesus. And in our minds, we go back to Matthew 1 where the angel of the Lord says, you shall call him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And then he goes on to say, God with us. You see, God had to come down. Jesus steps down in order to secure the right to have this supply of hope. And without that right... Without him paying our debt and the demands of the law, we would have no access to the supply. But what good would it do if this Savior wasn't our representative, that we weren't united to him so that this one, this Savior, represents us to God and God to us? This is how we get access to it. We obtain it. And he goes on to say Christ. That's the, the, the... a uh, title that describes his messiahship, that this is God's representative. It has second Adam pictures. The first Adam, our representative, failed us. And we died in Adam. And it's going to be buried in the body that came from Adam. First Corinthians 15 says, in Adam we all die. But in the second Adam, in Christ, we're made alive. This is the idea of messiahship. He's our representative. You need a representative. That's how you gain access to the right that He's obtained by His death and His obedience and His resurrection in order to get this hope that's secured by God. I mean, I love it. You just sit back and just start to meditate on this. It's like, whoa, God's grace. This is living hope. This is living hope. It's in the Supreme Person. Secondly, God's grace to you. We're asking, what's this hope, this living hope in the gospel? It's God's grace to you in the supreme relation, in the supreme union. You need to be united with Christ. And so he goes on in verse 6. Remember, you've heard the word of truth, the gospel. What do you do with that? I'm sorry, verse 4. Verse 4. Since we heard of your faith, of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love that you have for all the saints, you need to be united with Christ by faith. You may ask, well, what does it mean to be united with Christ? Well, Colossians two helps us out with that. You can start in verse well, verse eleven, all the in him statements. It's unity. United with him. He's our representative. He's acting on our behalf. So verse eleven, in him you're circumcised. And we're going to talk about his death on the cross. It's done without hands, so it's not a physical circumcision. He's talking about dealing with sin. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come. Verse twelve, being buried with him in baptism. In verse and he says, it's made without hands. So it's a spiritual baptism, a spiritual immersion into Christ so that God looks at us as having been buried with him, raised with him through faith, verse 12 says, raised through faith in the powerful working of God. And in verse 13, the very end, we're made alive together with him. That is a description of union with our representative to gain the right to his saving hope. Now, According to Colossians 2, going back there, notice that we're, verse 13, made alive together with him. That's why we argue that it's because of the ascension of Christ, his his resurrection, that he actually makes us alive so that our faith is the fruit of him making us alive because he's the resurrected king. He sends his spirit into our hearts and awakens us, gives us life, opens our eyes to see the glory of Christ continuing back in verse 4, then we hear the proclamation. We're awakened, we're made alive, and we believe we have faith in Christ Jesus. I remember meeting with um, Mary Davis. This is years ago. Mary Davis, North Omaha area. And some, of, some of you know her well. I'll breathe in those her well. Knew her well. And in her uh, last days, she was struggling from lung disease. And uh, she was at Emanuel Hospital, and so I'd be with her and She's on the oxygen. She's laying in the bed. She's growing weaker. And she's trying to understand, make sure she understands the gospel. I mean, she's concerned. She goes, okay, so it's believing in Jesus. So it's choosing Jesus. You know, it's that I've chosen Jesus. I've not chosen anyone else. he, He accepts me because I've chosen Jesus. I said, Mary, it's good to claim Christ. But what we're talking about with faith, God doesn't accept you because you did something valuable, like choosing Jesus faith is resting in the value of Christ. I said, Mary, um, you're drawing from the oxygen right now. It's supplying you with everything. What would happen if you pulled off the oxygen? You, You cut it off, you die. So you're just simply receiving it. It's coming to you as a gift. Oh, okay. Faith, it's a gift. I'm receiving Christ. You're laying on a bed. Mary, if you told me, you know what? You're strong enough and you got down onto bed and you tried to support yourself, there's no way she could do that. That would be resting in your own strength. But you're just resting your entire weight on that bed right now. Right, Mary? Mm -hmm. That's an expression of faith. You are resting in all that God has done for you in Jesus Christ. You're receiving him. Yes, there's an admission, Christ is my Savior. I've sinned. There's an admittance that he's the only Savior. He's the only way, the truth, and the life. But there's a resting in God's provision. I'm guilty. I need Christ's righteousness. I receive that. I need his obedience for me because the law demands perfect love for God and for others. And I have not done that. I'm resting in Christ that he's loved God for me. And he's loved the neighbor perfectly, even in laying down his life. I need that credited to my account. I receive that. I receive his promises of life. I receive his promises that he's for me, that he's my God, my Savior. You're receiving. You're laying back. You're resting in him. That's the picture of this living hope. So God's grace, it's God's grace to you in the supreme person. That's why it's living hope. There's a supreme relation. You need to be united with him. It's because the ascended Lord makes you alive. How you say, well, how does that happen? Well, what he does is he has believers share the gospel as we're going to see in a moment. And you hear the gospel and your eyes are open to see your sin and realize the world can offer you nothing. And you see Christ's loveliness and his worth, and you trust in him. That's how he opens your eyes. That's how he grants you faith. So we Share the word. It's the proclamation of the king. But it comes through a supreme work. It comes through a supreme work. And this is 5 and 6. Again, we've looked at it, so we don't need to deal with it in any depth. Verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. It's done. He's just describing the culmination of the work of Jesus Christ. He came to this earth. He lived the perfect life, obeying the law of God for us and our stead, for those who believe in him. He had to pay the penalty, the debt of sin see that in the weeks to come in Colossians 2. He had to fulfill the demand of the law, obedience. He had to pay the debt of the law for us. He went to the grave because he he died in our place. But he had no sin in himself and God vindicated him and raised him from the dead for us. If you trust in him, you get the resurrected Christ for you on your behalf. So it's in the supreme work of redemption that solves our alienation with God. Calvin made this statement. He said, First, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. All that he possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. If you've not trusted in Christ... Those rich resources, they're in Christ. You need to be united with him. One of my kids was convicted over sin and said, I I know I need to be saved. I'm struggling with the sin. It's controlling me. I see it in other people's lives. I want to be saved. And so we read through Romans 1 through 6. And I just said, faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Let the word of Christ, let the gospel convict you of sin and show you how great Christ is and respond. It was so good just to lay the gospel out there. It's not in what we do. We receive it. Now notice, that this is amazing. How did this gospel come to us? And he's going to conclude it with verse 6. Which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Notice in verse 8. He's made known to us your love in the Spirit. So we've got it from the Father, it's through the work of the Son, and it has ascended culmination of his work that we're hoping in and through the love of the spirit verse eight so triune here from the father through the son by the work of the spirit that gospel verse six goes through the whole world bearing fruit and increasing we are linked by chains of love that go all the way back to from the father through the work of christ and his ascension the proclamation of the word the apostles they're preaching the word of god you can watch where the bible actually moved from jerusalem into egypt there's a thebic and Memphis, So Memphis and Thebes in Egypt, it was, the Bible was translated into their language. You can watch into Armenia and Syria. It's translated into their language, into the Georgian language. It keeps moving until it finally makes its way to the Anglo-Saxons. And finally, here we are, the benefit of John Wycliffe's translation. You can see the Bible moving, spreading, so that we are linked in this bonds of love and the glories.